0: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the I Wanna Party with Bob Bobcast. Yes, this is the special Friday the 13th edition of the podcast and or Bobcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different, sort of. This is part one in a series I'm doing called Skate and Destroy, and this is more than likely going to be a trilogy. And in these episodes, I am going to regale you with tales of my youth, misspent listening to punk rock, skateboarding, Getting into all kinds of trouble, yeah, got arrested a few times, stole a hotel tram one time, and got a road warrior like battling, driving through downtown Long Beach on it, uh, <coughs> or some downtown, uh, nearly getting killed by punk rock-hating Hessians in my hometown of Escondido, and also... Almost got killed and watched a lot of people nearly get killed by skinheads and suicidals at punk shows in the 80s. And I did dodge a lot of bullets there in those days. There's so much more to it than that, though. It's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting history, I think. So we're gonna, we're gonna take a listen here to when I was a kid back in days of yore, a good 30 fucking years ago. Good lord, man, that was a long time ago. I, this, I'm saying this episode is gonna be a little different, mostly because. I do talk about my own stuff, my own history with the Tilt Wheel episodes, right? I mean, those are at least partially about me. This one is much more personal. The focus is much more on me than the Tilt Wheel episodes, I believe. So let me just give you, here's the lowdown of what I'm going to cover in these Skate and Destroy episodes episodes of the Skate and Destroy trilogy. There will be some things that I'm going to come back and probably take a closer look at in their own podcasts in the future. As I was writing this and thinking about everything, there are a few subjects that might bear a little bit more scrutiny that just this trilogy can't cover. You know, we'll get to that at some point. There was a lot of good and also kind of ridiculous stuff that went on in the 1980s that I was part of. That got over the top and stuff. I would definitely say some stuff went on that if my kid did it when he, you know, is like gets to be a teenager when he's around 14 or so. I would kill him if I found out he was doing some of the things I did. Yeah, welcome to parenthood, I guess, right? The timeline and events I'm going to cover in this one. Let me just explain it. This first episode is going to kind of cover my introduction to the world of punk rock, and getting into punk rock is pretty much how I got involved in skateboarding. I will get into a brief couple things on the state of punk rock and also skateboarding in the early 1980s. From there, I'll talk about some of the punk shows, the very first punk shows that I went to what it was like to live in a redneck town in the 1980s when you had either a shaved head or a mohawk and a skateboard yeah not super safe I would say but not anything too life-threatening I guess I'm still here. I'm still alive. So yeah, I didn't get killed. From there, we're going to talk about some of the adventures I had skateboarding and different contests and traveling around doing stuff and finally meeting somebody who is going to figure prominently in the very last episode of this trilogy. We will hear more about him closer to the end. He's kind of an important figure in my history and in a very noteworthy and well-known public figure. You'll see. You'll see. Just stand by now. That band that you heard at the very beginning of this podcast, who was that? Hmm. That is the featured band of this episode, and that small part of a song was a song called Mr. Freeze by the band Dr. No. Now, before we get to the actual podcast itself, there is going to be a short interview section with Kyle Toucher of Dr. No that we did via Facebook Messenger, which is super rad. As usual, there's also going to be a full song at the very end of the podcast by Dr. No, and that song is called Life Returns. That is my very favorite Dr. No song of all time. And thank you so much, Kyle. I think it was Kyle that I was talking to. We never, he never actually gave me his name and that's fine, I asked him, but that's, yeah, whatever. Based on the way he answered the questions, I'm assuming it was Kyle. He was kind of the founder and leader of the band for all of its history, more or less. And thank you so much for answering those questions and thank you for letting me play a couple songs. Super rad. As usual... Let's, uh, let's get to the burning question of every episode of the I Want to Party with Bob podcast, of course, is what beer is keeping the wind beneath my wings on this episode in particular? Well, this time it is the Daywalker Dry Hopped with Cascade Hops beer from Plan 9 Ale House in Escondido, California. This one is an American Amber Ale with five and a half percent alcohol by volume. Let's have a sip and see how it goes. And oh yeah, that is a smooth and delicious beer. Now that's the amber ale. Definitely, it's a little fruity tasting, kind of because of those hops that it's got going on. A very um nice aftertaste. Like, can barely tell. No bitterness. No weirdness. Yet yeah, that beer is smooth, man. It that beer it's so smooth it reminds me of like grinding on a waxed curb with copers on. Yes. you you will see what the definition of a coper is here shortly. Yeah, damn, that is a good, good beer. Later on, we are going to hear a little bit more from Plan 9, so stay tuned. Now, Dr. No, what a band. One of my absolute favorite bands of those days, the early 80s specifically, and really, even now. I I still do listen to them. I have listened to them for over, you know, whatever, 30-something years. So yeah, absolutely one of my favorite bands. They're, it's really weird. There is just something about this band that hits me right where I need to be hit. It's kind of a little bit metal kind of stuff going on. It's like mean sounding. It's awesome. It's so good. There were a couple of versions of this band. The original version had Brandon Cruz as a singer. Brandon left. The guitarist Kyle Toucher took over on vocals after Brandon left. The Kyle version of this band is by far my absolute favorite. I would say I love that dude's voice. It's kind of a... Just menacing and mean sounding, right? It fits the music much better than Brandon's voice did, and in, in my eyes, I would and heart, I would say. Now, do you remember Brandon Cruz, dude? The tri- little trivia here, huh? He was the child, the the young boy, on the TV show, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and that was a sitcom that aired between the years of 1969 until 1972. Bill Bixby, aka Bruce Banner, aka the Incredible Hulk. Bruce Banner was the smaller scientist form of the Incredible Hulk, played Eddie's father on that show. And now, this is not to be confused with a 1963 movie that had Glenn Ford as Eddie's dad, right? Okay, yeah. The kid that played Eddie in the show went on to sing for this punk band, Dr. No, from Oxnard, California. Now, Brandon left in 1983, and not to talk any shit, really, I'm glad he did, because Kyle... I think, has the far superior voice and makes this band 10 times better than it was when Brandon was singing. In, in my opinion, opinion, okay, fact, actually, um, a fact, yeah. Here are the answers that Kyle gave me to the questions that I posed to Kyle and Dr. No. First question, what year did the band start? When did Brandon leave? And Kyle, when did you take over on vocals? Kyle says, the band began in 1981. The first show ever was July 2nd of 1981. Uh, the original lineup was... Kyle Toucher on guitar, Ismael Hernandez on bass, Robin Cartwright on drums, Joy Pena was singing at the time of their very first show and their very first form, and Dave Casillas played guitar as well. Brandon came in likely 1982, lasted about a year. His child star novelty, Notoriety, really helped get us into our first LA shows. He was very good at schmoozing, opened some doors, absolutely. Brandon left as he said he wanted to play funny songs. Dr. No tunes, especially those heavily Discharge inspired songs we were writing at the time, were too dark for his liking. And Kyle adds, odd since he runs around singing them now. Now, brief interlude in this interview part there are two versions of Dr. No right now. There's the real or original Dr. No, more or less, with Kyle Toucher singing and playing guitar and a couple other guys. I think one of those other guys is also an original member. And. There's a Brandon Cruz singing version that goes around in the United States by the name of Just No, playing all of Kyle's songs and acting as if they are the original form of Dr. No. Well, Dr. No's another another one of those bands just like the Misfits, without Kyle it's not the same fucking band. It's not he wrote all the songs, wrote all the lyrics I think. He is core and fundamental to the existence of the band, so and eh, sorry Brandon it ain't the same band without Kyle playing guitar and singing. Yeah, there you go. Also, another side note on Brandon Cruz uh, when Jello did not decide to perform with the reformed Dead Kennedys a few years ago, guess who sang in Jello's place? Oh, yeah, Brandon Cruz. So if you went and saw Dead Kennedys in those days, you got ripped off in my eyes. Yes, you probably did. So there you go. Let's get back to the actual interview part with Kyle. Kyle says, Toucher rhymes with voucher. Moved into vocals in 1983 after a string of incompatible singers. Seemed the right move at the time. Changed the sound of the band to give it its individual stamp on things. My next question, Dr. No, were on Mystic Records, whose owner Doug Moody was kind of well-known for ripping off bands and other shady things. So I asked, what was it like working with Doug Moody? Kyle's answer, Moody is a small-time cat. At that time, looking to cast a wide net in order to do anything profitable. Major labels would never touch garage bands like ours or anyone else's. A rundown studio, a rundown label, the perfect fit in the L.A. hardcore zeitgeist. He filled that void perfectly. We were kids that knew zero. He was likely the age that I am now at the time. Was it predatory? Sure. That's entertainment. But we got Plug in Jesus and Burn out of it. And those were two of Dr. No's records that were out on Mystic Records. Now, this is from Kyle. Mystic was so cheap, plug-in Jesus was recorded on used two-inch tape. (laughs) Yeah, dude, I've always heard that Doug Moody guy was super fucking cheap, like, and totally ripped the bands off, by the way. Kyle didn't say that, but I'm throwing that out there. I don't know if it's true, but there you go. I asked uh, my next question, anything coming up for Dr. No? Kyle says, there is a record written. You never know. Time is a diminishing commodity. I think he's saying he's getting older and who knows how much longer they're going to do the band. Who knows? Hopefully they do get a new record out. I would be absolutely stoked for sure. Now, last question. My famous burrito question. What is the best burrito you've ever had and where was it from? Kyle's answer. I am too old to eat burritos these days. It's like eating a sofa cushion. (laughs) I get it. I'm with you. I get it. But all Asada all the time. Leading burrito and or taco places? Who knows if they're still going? And I did check on these, Kyle. So let's check it out here. Tacos de Mexico in Oxnard. It's still there. Super Taco in Oxnard. Still there. La Perla in Oxnard. Still there. And Tacos Jalisco in Ventura. Still there. Kyle, if you want to revisit any of those places, they are still there. If you are listening to this, there you go. Hit them back up again. They're all still there. Thanks again, Kyle, for that interview. That was super awesome. Appreciate it. Actually, with that interview itself with Kyle of Dr. No, I was fanboying out like crazy. I was super duper into Dr. No when I was a kid, when I was like a young teenage kid, 14, 15, 16, that kind of thing. Hell, I made a Dr. No logo stencil, and let's just say that the trees of the neighborhood I lived in were, uh, they were slightly modified from their original natural form. uh, With Dr. No logos all over said trees. Yeah, I was super happy that that he let me play those songs, did that interview. Thank you again. I will keep saying thank you, apparently. Now, here's a little fact, too. Did you know that Slayer covered that song that you heard at the very beginning, Mr. Freeze, on their Undisputed Attitude all-covers record? Yes, they did. All right, so moving on from Dr. No. How did all of this stuff that I have going on in my life start, like this podcast, Tilt Wheel, playing drums? All of that stuff kind of goes back to how I discovered punk rock, and skateboarding that all leads to me playing drums which led to like so many other things opened so many doors how did it all start well let's get to it I'm glad you asked that's what we're here for around 1981 I was introduced to new wave and punk by my neighbor my best friend Troy his older sister Martha was a punk kid she was probably we were like preteens I was 11 Troy was I was 11 Troy was probably 11 as well His sister was probably like 15 or 16. She listened to all kinds of rad stuff. So I got my first taste of that kind of bigger world. Like I said, I was 11. The only music I was into was stuff my brother liked, kind of stuff like Kiss, like Cheap Trick, and through my neighbor Troy and his sister Martha, I discovered Devo, The Cars, The Clash, Dead Kennedys, and the B-52s is another good example. And surprisingly, that was, of the records she had, one B-52s, I think it was her very first record, that was like my favorite, other than Dead Kennedys, actually, that was like my favorite record that she had. We would play, when she wasn't around, we would play it all the time. It was rad. So what Troy and I would do, my little buddy, we would write the names of all these bands on these plain white t-shirts and magic marker and kind of hang out in front of our houses in the neighborhood thinking we were so cool and so punk, right? Yeah, the cool kids. We were cool kids. Now. In 1983, a local San Diego radio station called 91X changed their format from dragon-shaped bong rock format to a more rock of the 80s and new wave format, a lot like K-Rock in LA, right? 91X would occasionally play stuff like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, that fucking horrible version of My Way by Sid Vicious, and some other stuff I don't really remember. They played a few punk songs, basically. They mostly did play a lot of new wave stuff and oh, fuck, they played so much Joe Jackson in the early 80s. I'm not shitting you. When they first started, they played Joe Jackson like every 10 songs. And i goddamn it, I hate Joe Jackson. I'm sorry if you like him. My wife does. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I can't, I hate Joe Jackson. And they played the shit out of him. So there, there you go. That's how I initially got into liking punk-ish type of music, I guess you would say. I would also go to my local record store, every week looking for punk records after I discovered punk. The most edgy kind of stuff they had in this record store was kind of things along the more new wavey kind of side of things. I will note, though, the first record I bought with my own money, that was allowance and lawn mowing money, I should say, was the Lords of the New Church self-titled first LP, and that was in the year of 1982. Yes, I was a very advanced 12-year-old, apparently, I had great taste in music. Lords of the New Church are fucking tight. That record, check it out. That original, self-titled Lords of the New Church record is so goddamn good. It holds up so well. It's absolutely fantastic. And a little trivia, that's Stiv Bader's of The Dead Boys that sings for Lords of the New Church and a member of the Damned. Um, What's his name? Brian, something or other. Getting a little sidetracked here. In that same record store, I also remember buying the very first Suicidal Tendencies record, and that was in the year 1983, and I was 13. I remember taking that record up to the counter to buy it, and I got some really shitty looks and comments from that clerk that sold that record to me. She was like a teenage girl, like, you know, 80s fucking hair, hair hairsprayed like crazy, neon plastic bracelets and shit, and I think all that hairspray and neon bullshit fucked her brain up Because she started talking shit to a 13-year-old kid, and it was the 80s. I'm going to talk a lot more about getting fucked with as a kid by older people because it happened constantly to us in the 80s. What a fucking weird decade that was. Seriously. Every time we left the house, we got fucked with pretty much. And I didn't look that way. I had like a flat top back then. I was a pretty normal-looking kid, like Levi's, a flannel shirt, and a flat top. Ugh you know, whatever. I don't know. But listen to this. Okay. That record store, by the way, this local record store that I'm referring to was a place called Licorice Pizza, which was later to become Sam Goody. Do you remember those places? Oh, I do. The young woman who sold me this record in Licorice Pizza with the hairspray and the neon, what did she say to me as I brought that record up? She goes, oh, what's this? I go, it's this band, Suicidal Tennis. <laughs> That's a real top 40 hit, isn't it? I was like, uh, fuck I what do you okay she's so, like god this record looks so lame this sucks like just sell me the fucking record dude I wish I was like 21 and she'd say something to me like that or older where I you know wasn't like a s- weird little kid I'd be like hey just sell me the goddamn record so I can get away from you please thank you young lady have a have a fantastic day and where's your manager by the way that's what I should I should have asked for the manager that's really what I should have done Another thing that happened to me around 1983, I met another kid who had very similar interests to me and similar tastes in music in the Boy Scouts. Yes, I was a Boy Scout. This young man and his brother were both in my Boy Scout troop. This is where things are going to start to get a little bit weird. This kid that I met in 1983 and his brother, they are very central to my story and almost every single little antic or shenanigan that I got up to in the early 80s from when I met him in 1983 until the early 90s, because we were best friends, he was there. I mean, in part of whatever shenanigans I was involved in, for sure. And beyond, we stayed friends for many, many years, even after the 90s, into the 2000s, the 2010s, you name it. So this is awkward a little bit. He was my best friend for years and years and years. My shadow, my brother. Yeah, it's a bummer, kind of. Sadly, he does not he wants absolutely no part of this podcast or any of my podcasts. But you know what? Here's what I'm going to say, OK? This is my story. I'm going to tell it with or without him. In true uh, dragnet form, the names will be changed to protect the innocent, OK? I'm going to call him Mike and his brother, who is also a big part of my story, because he was there for a lot of the stuff that we did. We're going to call him Mo. Okay, so Mike and Moe, and that is definitely not their real names. It's really not even close at all to their real names, okay? Don't fucking try and research it or do anything. He doesn't want any part of it. Leave the poor guy alone, whatever. That's what I'm trying to do. But And I try to keep mentioning him and his brother to a minimum in this one as well, okay? Because I don't want to stir up any waves or cause any trouble for the guy. Whatever his deal is, fine, out of respect for him. His name is now Mike, and his brother's name is Moe. There you go. It should be easy to remember, right? Mike and Mo. Yeah, and if you knew their real names, it'd actually be kind of funny. Or not, I don't know. The whole thing is kind of silly. Like I said, though, out of respect to my old best friend, you know, who I love dearly, by the way, that's how this is going to have to be. So Mike and I, there in 1983, you know, good little Boy Scouts that we were, traded tapes of all the kind of punkish music that we had. And he turned me on to a whole bunch of new bands like Flipper and, God, I can't even, maybe Youth Brigade? Were they around then? I can't remember, but yeah, he turned me on to a bunch of new stuff. I turned, oh yeah, I know one band for sure he turned me on to was 45 Grave, which I was like, whoa, dude, this is gnarly. He turned me on to a bunch of new stuff. I turned him on to a bunch of new stuff, and that was like a whole new world. You know, like, wow. And isn't that funny when you're a little kid and you discover something new that you love? It's like, it's, seriously, it's like being able to see after you've been blind. or It's such a huge, big deal. damn, I wish I still had that same sense of wonder now that I did when something big and great would come into my life like I did when I was a kid. And I do a little bit, but it's just not the same. Do you know what I mean? That's a very, very interesting thing that happens to you when you're a little kid and you discover something. You're like, oh my God. Like It's like you looked up and there were stars all of a sudden and you'd never seen them before. What the fuck is that? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. One night, Mike and I went to the movies at a place called The Carousel in Escondido, California, that's where Mike and I were growing up. We passed by a little tiny store in this. It was The carousel was part of like a little bit of a larger shopping center. Not much bigger, but a little bit. And we walked by this little tiny store that had some kind of interesting stuff in the window. Like like a neon sign. some kind It of, huh, looks kind of like a head shop. Is it a record store? Because there was like music stuff in there too, it looked like. There was a picture of David Lee Roth of Van Halen in the window wearing this like checkered bandana like he did and a little blurb underneath this picture that said something like David Lee Roth loves Rock Sox. Something like that. Yeah. Well, the name of the store was Rock Socks, So we go in there. And we're, what is this place? Right. They sold some really rad stuff. And one of the things that they sold that was really rad was a magazine called Thrasher Magazine. Now, Thrasher, I'd never heard of before, had no idea what it was. It had skate like a skater on the cover. And I remember that issue was the I think the Capitola Downhill Street classic, and it was a picture of Steve Caballero like going off of a launch ramp on, at this contest in Capitola, California, right? And I go, huh. And it had like the names of some punk bands on the front. I went, whoa, what is this? So I opened it up and looked and there's like punk stuff and skateboarding. So I bought it. Well, pretty cool. That was the winner of 1984, by the way. And I was 14 years old did not own a skateboard at this point, right? I went through that fucking magazine cover to cover, just just tore into it, went nuts, right? Oh my God, talking about like opening your eyes to a whole new world, that was gnarly. And I told my buddy Mike, I said, hey, this stuff, this skateboarding thing looks rad. Let's start skating, it looked super fun and awesome. What a weird coincidence. He actually had an old board that he was willing to sell me because he wanted to get a new board He wanted to ask for a new board for Christmas, so he would sell me his old board and we could start skating. Ah, Very interesting. That very first board that I bought from him used, of course. It was some kind of Sims model, not a pro model. Some just random board, right? And it was totally a complete setup. He got a whole new setup. Off we went. We started kind of putzing around. Um, Let me say for the record, though, I did have a lot of experience skateboarding before that. It had been a few years but it was really just like cruising around when I was a little kid, No, you know, no skating vert or pools or ramps, not doing any tricks, n- and nothing like that whatsoever. I actually went skating at Escondido's skate park, which was called Whirl and Wheels in 1979. Then my mom still has pictures of me being like a little nine-year-old kid rolling through the skate park called Whirl and Wheels. And the thing was, here's the deal. My older brother, he's seven years older than me. He was an avid surfer and skater in the mid to late 70s, right? So... I'd take his skateboard when he wasn't riding it or whenever he'd let me ride it, which he was kind of like, say he was out and about and his skateboard's right there. Fuck. I'd go grab it and ride it. He would let me, he didn't really care. And I did that all the time. That's a little bit of a side note. Never learned any tricks. I, but I knew how to push and roll and stand on a skateboard and all that. So I had that going for me. I really didn't start until after that Christmas, January of 85. And I went to the Del Mar skate ranch in Del Mar, California and with Christmas money, bought a brand new complete setup. Let me tell you about that setup because it was fucking ridiculous. Oh, yes, it was pretty ridiculous. So, this board, as I like to think of it, my first real skateboard, okay? It was a suicidal skates deck. And that fucking beast, it was 11 inches wide and 31 inches long. And that's huge, right? It had a very short, squared-off nose and a giant, like, fish style of tail. The graphic on the board was of a bandana-wearing, skull-headed person skating in a pool, doing, like, a gnarly frontside edger kind of thing. That drawing-in graphic on that board was actually done by pro skater and Bones Brigade member Lance Mountain. Pretty rad. Uh, it's a suicidal skates board, like I said. I got that board equipped with rails, a nose guard copers, and a tail guard or tailbone Let me explain what these items are to you who may be unfamiliar with all those strange and exotic names, okay? Rails on a skateboard. Rails on a skateboard are two long, slightly thick, narrow pieces of plastic that's screwed into the bottom of the skateboard deck, and that was for a couple of reasons, and A, my thought at the time was to prevent that graphic on the bottom of your skateboard from getting all fucked up, right? That's what I thought at first, anyway, and B to give you the ability to do rail slides easier, smoother, faster, and easier without also fucking up the bottom graphic. Eh, well, that would, both are kind of true, yes. Now, a nose guard. That's basically just what it sounds like. It's a piece of plastic that you would screw onto the very front or nose of the skateboard deck to protect the board from splintering if it rolled into something nose first and hit it hard. Which would happen quite often when you're, especially when you're learning to skate, or well, whatever. It would really happens anytime you skate, kind of if you're trying to do stuff. Copers, oh yes, copers. Copers are essentially just formed pieces of PVC pipe that you would clip onto the trucks or the axles of the skateboard to allow for smooth as butter grindage. Another narnar stuff. So you'd slap these copers on your trucks, and you could hit like an unpainted curb. And just, just kind of grind your way along. It wouldn't sound like that with code with the copers. It was muted more like, up. Oh, I didn't even do it right then, did I? Eh, whatever. If you if you know about copers, high five to you because hopefully you eventually got away from them. They're like kind of like training wheels for grinding, aren't they? They really they really were. Copers were weird. Kind of like they were they were fun until the fucking thing like broke and flew off, and you're like, oh fuck, I'm just, I'm out five bucks. And I just slapped this stupid thing on. That's when we stopped using cobers. Was after we Mike and I went into the skate shop, bought a pair each. You know, and they I think they were like three to five bucks for a pair of them. Popped them on, went out and started trying to grind these curbs and doing all this shit. And boom, but for both of us, like within a minute or two, they fucking broke off. And we're like, fuck, man, this is bullshit. We're not paying this kind of money. So we learned how to grind without them, like everybody else. We manned up, I guess. Or however you want to say it. Nah, I don't like that word manned up. That's a stupid... You know what? I fucking hate that word manned up. I completely strike that from the records. I hate that word. We were talking about copers. Let's move on to the tail guard. And other than protecting the rear or tail of the board from wearing down when you're like ollieing, which involves like popping the tail of the skateboard off the ground, or if you're like dragging the tail when you're doing like a manual or wheelie kind of thing, the only point to those things was to make it harder to ollie because it kind of made the distance between your tail and the ground it threw it off so it definitely made it harder to ollie, and also that screwed into the board but you know on the bottom side of the tail so yeah holy shit i mean my first real skateboard had more fucking hardware on it than a dresser from ikea i'm not shitting you that thing was intense it was gnarly It was a magnificent beast. It really was. It was huge. It was heavy. It was hard to, like, skate. It was hard to skate. I I bought the widest independent trucks you could buy at the time. I forget what size they were, like 170-something millimeters. They're just fucking insane. Like, now I think the board I have now, they're like 155, and those are wide, too. So, yeah, dude, these things were like a, fuck, man, like a semi-trailer axle or something. Gnarly. And I had some kind of bones, wheels, and they were like fucking orange marshmallows. I swear to God, they were giant. Yeah, they were gnarly. Um, Instead of grip tape on this board, my brother had a bunch of like six inch round pieces of stick on sandpaper that I kind of cut out and liberally applied to the very top of the board. So I had a bunch of like circled pieces of black sandpaper on top of my first skateboard. Oh, I looked like such a fucking idiot. Oh my God. Yeah, I did that. That board was a nightmare. That was a, a horrible choice for somebody that was just starting to skate. Like, really, a ba- I liked suicidal tendencies though, and that board spoke to me. You know, I was like, "Dude, suicidal? What? Oh, that's red. Yeah, I want that one." Oh my god, that was a bad, bad, bad choice. Yeah, nightmare, nightmare. That thing was a tank. That board weighed close to twenty pounds. I swear to God, no shit. By comparison, the modern day complete skateboard weighs around seven to ten pounds. And at the time, I probably weighed, I don't know, maybe 120 pounds. I was 15 years old. Just a little skinny teenage kid, right? I don't know. I was, I was skinny. I'm rolling around on this fucking 20-pound piece of, like, this goddamn boat, skateboard tank thing, whatever. However the fuck. It was like an amphibious assault vehicle. The thing was gnarly, right? Yeah, I could barely handle it. But, I, hey, guess what? I did. I still remember the day I learned how to do an ollie on a skateboard. Now, Mike and I would meet, we went to Escondido High School, we would meet every morning before school at this shopping center right across the street, like kind of behind the high school, actually, and we'd roll around, try out tricks, try and do new stuff, you know, and Mike was ahead of me, definitely skateboarding skill-wise. The dude was, we'll get more into him later, he's rad, okay, great skater. He'd already learned how to ollie, he was kind of helping me learn how to ollie, and I did, I kept practicing and practicing, and, finally got that sorted out I'm telling you let me tell you about this Mike guy he was he was such a great skater truly a good skater he almost did go pro he was in talks to get his own pro model before he basically stopped skating we might get more into that in a future I don't know I don't know this is a tricky subject I got to kind of keep this cool so he may kind of float in and out of future skateboarding related podcasts. If I do s- decide to continue after this trilogy, you know, it's all kind of dependent on feedback. So let me know if you listen to it and you like it. I would, like I always say, I really, really, really want feedback. Anything you can let me know, that's great. That dude, Mike, he was a fucking natural though, right? Now, before I wrap up this little section of the very, very beginning of my life, skateboarding, And being a little shaved head and or mohawked, a 15-year-old kid, let me give you a quick history lesson. Or really, I'm going to talk about what the state of both punk rock and skateboarding was in the early 1980s. So skateboarding, skateboarding was huge in the 1970s. I mean, it was gigantic. There were corporate sponsors everywhere like Pepsi and shit. It was everywhere, commercials, TV, magazines, you name it skateboarding was there it died out big in the late 70s after the sport had really moved forward gotten a lot more dangerous a lot of skate parks started shutting down it was an evolving thing so like in the 70s and 80s skateboarding died out quite a bit like a lot of fads tend to do skateboarding was not a fad however the diehards of skateboarding kept it going people who truly loved the sport or the action the skateboarding thing however the fuck you want to say it they made their entire life revolved around skateboarding. These men and women kept that sport going, okay? Now, I'm not going to go too deep into the history of skateboarding here. Maybe in the future on another podcast we'll take a closer look at the history of skateboarding. Let me just throw a couple of little statistics and facts out that might put things into a perspective for you about what the state of skateboarding was in the 1980s. So, what was what were the number of pro skaters? that were around in the early 1980s versus today, the year 2019. And you know, I can't find a solid figure for how many pro skaters there were in the 1980s. But as I was kind of living through it and voraciously like going through every magazine that I could get my hands on that had anything to do with skateboarding, which really was Thrasher and Transworld only at that time, in those days, I would say there were probably less than 50, definitely less than 100 pro skaters. I'm sure there has, to, I'm talking worldwide too, now in the year 2019, as far as I can tell from the research, and I fuck, I like dove into this thing and really tried to figure this out. There's somewhere around 24 to 25,000 professional skateboarders in the world today. Jesus Christ, what, that's gnarly, isn't it? I mean, to go from like less than a hundred to like 25 thousand pro skaters now granted you know um, it's almost 40 years later however the fuck you want to say it. it's been a long time right but still good lord man that's nuts okay now what about skate parks when I started skating you know 1984-ish Southern California only had two skate parks the Del Mar Skate Ranch and Pipeline in Upland, California Nationwide, they say in 1982, there were still around 200 skate parks in the United States. By 1984, that there may have only been the two Delmar and Upland that I could find. I searched and I fucking dove into this part too. I couldn't find shit about any other skate parks anywhere else. So, yeah, in 1984, it looks like there may only have been two actual, like, charging for admission skate parks remaining in the United States. Now, There were free skate parks here and there. I know like Derby Park in Santa Cruz, California, that for sure was there because we skated that in like 1987 or something like that. So yeah, that was still around, but that wasn't like a charge for admission, have to wear pads, blah, blah, blah. Of those working skate parks, there were only two that I know of. Now, one good thing about there only being a couple skate parks left in the US is that did lead to skaters getting resourceful, like building their own backyard ramps. Uh, going out and finding abandoned pools it really made skateboarding a little bit more kind of as a DIY like ethic kind of dude skaters were gnarly back then we would drive like a hundred miles to skate a pool for an hour just because it was something new something new something different some a new challenge a new adventure new fun that's not I don't know there are people that still do that I'm sure but listen to this stat and this is the closest thing I could find to kind of today in 2014. There were over 3,500 skate parks just in the United States of America alone compared to two in 1984. And fuck, isn't that a crazy number? 3,500 compared to like two that I know of. So I do think when all those parks died in the late 70s and early 80s, that changed skateboarding far for the better. Like I said, it made skateboarding more diy Most of the skate companies that were still around then were run by skaters, not some fucking rich asshole who's like, oh, there's money to be made in skateboarding, so I'm going to start a skateboard company. You know, uh, put the cheapest shit you can. No, these skateboards and their products, like trucks and wheels and bearings, you name it, grip tape, were made by skaters for skaters, and the quality vastly improved, I think. So, It was a good thing. I think it was actually a good thing. Skating crashed in the late 70s, early 80s because it came back with a fucking vengeance. And it's never been better. So there you go. Now, what was the state of punk rock in the early 80s? Now, just speaking of numbers, let me try and throw some stats out. Didn't have a lot of luck with this. I'm going to try, okay? What was the number of punk bands that were active in the early 80s? And shit, I cannot find a definitive number, no matter how I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find anything. I would guess. I mean, I think that's a pretty low number. I think maybe somewhere around 200 to 300 punk bands in the world at that time. Uh, Maybe 500. 500 would be a little high for me, I think. And that's, that's active, like kind of touring, putting out records, like, you know, active bands. I think maybe 200. If we're talking that, as far as punk rock goes, bands that would tour, play shows, put out records, maybe not tour like around the country, but at least play a little bit out of town or something like that. Yeah, I would guess probably around 200, right? I don't know. There's no fucking census for this stuff, you know, right? How many punk bands are around today? And again, I cannot find a definitive answer for that question. Once again, I would guess somewhere in like the tens of thousands, the, the very least like thousands, you know, five, six thousand punk bands worldwide. How many do you think? I fuck. I think that number is huge, 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 huge. I think right now it is so much safer to go to a punk rock show. And I actually I know it's a lot safer to go to a punk rock show now than it was in the 1980s. And this would have been a great thing to have Davey on the podcast for. Damn it. You know, I didn't prepare. In that respect, because that dude that would be something that I would love to get for a future podcast to talk about violence in punk rock, especially in the early to mid to late 80s, because it was the 80s. You know, it would have been just easier for me to just say 80s. Oh, geez, Louise. Okay. I haven't even had this whole plan I beer yet, and it's only five percent. What is going on? It's, I think it's just my brain. <laughs> anyway. I really should have talked to Davey about San Diego was gnarly in the 80s and had a reputation. Like, bands didn't want to come play here because they'd get fucking beat up if they did. Shows were nuts. Now, what was my first punk rock show? Ooh, this was actually a pretty good show. It was Bad Religion, Social Distortion, a band called The Front. That was kind of a San Diego eh, punk band. And more of like a rock band? Ah, they were weird and a band called Corporate Disease, and I do not remember Corporate Disease. I'm sorry. we must have showed up after they played. That show was on Friday, September 20th, 1985, and it was at a place called Wabash Hall, and that was on the corner of Wabash and University in San Diego, kind of the border of North Park and City Heights. That show was nuts. We came in while the front was playing, and the kind of music they played, it was kind of like this mellow kind of cowpunk. Eh, I wasn't a big fan. I really didn't like it. There was a dude who was just dancing away in front of the band, just having the fucking time of his life all by himself. There's no pit or anything like that, right? This dude was just happy dancing around. Like four or five skinheads jumped on that dude and beat the fucking living shit out of him. I mean, they were boot stomping him. It was like fucking goddamn. This is my first experience going to a punk show. I had been to concerts. I had been to see the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. I... People don't get fucking beat up for dancing at a Beach Boys concert, do they? Oh, Lord. What was, I, what was my thought at that time? What do you think it was? At that very, at that second, at that second, I thought to myself, what am I getting myself into? All that went away when Bad Religion started playing social distortion. Headlined Mike Ness, hit up my friend Vicky, asked her if she wanted to come backstage and shoot up with him. True story. Yeah. Oh, boy. Shows were rough back then. That's just one example. Those guys, fuck those dudes, man. Fuck the San Diego skinheads. Fuck them, man. They were pieces of shit. They beat up fucking anybody. They were vicious, man. Well, nowadays, I don't know about everywhere, but shows like that Shitwheel plays and, and within our peer group, if a bunch of skinheads showed up and started beating people up at one of our shows or like one of our friends band shows or something like that, there would be a crowd of people chasing them down the street fuck get the fuck out of here and don't ever come back i would hope i've seen it happen to a guy that was causing trouble at a show and this the entire bar came out like chasing the guy down the street like get the fuck out of here and don't come back now he didn't get beat up they let him go but they showed him like we're not going to take your shit right so i dude thinking back to the 80s i dodged so many bullets i never got beat up i came really really fucking close really close but at a show like that I never got jumped I got lucky man here's an example I was at a GBH show at Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach and that was in July of 1986 I was standing behind a group of these suicidal dudes right and they were like a gang from the LA Venice area and as this show went on I watched these suicidal dudes just beat the shit out of many many people I'm not kidding a bunch of different people I'm kind of standing there, eh, you know, I was like 86, I was 16, I accidentally bumped into one of the dudes, and the dude fucking turned around, like cocked his arm back, and I'm like, whoa, 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 dude, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and one of his buddies, you know, did the whole, whatever, I can't whistle that good, and fuck, they were off, they ran off, went after some other dude, beat the shit out of this other guy, and I go, oh, thank God, like, I almost fucking got it that time, but I didn't. I got really lucky. The punk shows were fucking sketchy back then. Talking of things that are not sketchy, let's take a little break and have a word from our good friends at Plan 9 Alehouse of Escondido, California. Here we go. Let me ask you a question. Who is Santa Claus's favorite singer? Elphys Presley. What is the best Christmas present in the world, you might ask? A broken drum. You just can't beat it. And last one. What do you call a snowman with six pack abs? An abdominal snowman. That's right. Oh boy. There's no joke about Plan 9 Alehouse's fine selection of beer and foods. You have a large variety of beers. From stouts, IPAs, amber ales, and more, as well as a very fine selection of food for you to enjoy this holiday season. That's right, and do not forget, they do have, up until December 31st, the I Want to Party with Bob special. One food item of equal or lesser value for free with a purchase of any food item, excluding alcohol. This special is only good until December 31st, so rush on in and get it. Good only for first-time visitors. So go on into Plan 9 Ale House This holiday season located at 155 East Grand Avenue in Escondido, California. You can reach them by phone at 760-489-8817 or on the web at www.plan9alehouse.com. Plan 9 Alehouse, beer for the people. All right. Thank you, the excellent people of Plan 9 Ale House in Escondido for doing what you do. Now, don't forget to get in there, have some beers, enjoy that I Want to Party with Bob podcast special. It's not going to last long, only until the end of December. Back to me, my favorite subject. Okay. One place that we skated a lot, a lot in those days of the early 80s was the Del Mar Skate Ranch. Now, too young to have a car or a driver's license, we had to take the bus from Escondido to Del Mar. Yes, that was a pain in the ass, but we had a ton of fun when we did get there. Del Mar Skate Ranch. What what a fucking great skate park that was. It was so, so much fun. During the summer when we were out of school, we would go there at least two or three times a week, if not more you know, a couple days during the week, on a weekend day. One time, a friend of Mike and I, his name was Dave Carr. He and I were also pretty good friends, not best friends. Well, we were close to best friends, whatever. We both lied to our parents and said we were staying at the other guy's house. You remember that little gem from your teenage years? And I was 15. Yeah, You'd say, oh, I'm going to stay at Dave's tonight. Dave would say, oh, I'm going to stay over at Bob's tonight. And Secretly you're out doing something stupid, right? And if you did end up back home, well, so be it. You you were covered, more or less, right? Okay. So what we did, we lied about where we're staying. We took the bus out to Del Mar on a summer evening with the intention of staying the night and getting first dibs on that skate park bright and early the next day, right when they opened the doors. So yeah, we'd be refreshed, ready to skate, ready to go. Uh-huh. No, we didn't sleep even a wink that night that we tried to stay. At the skate park, we went down to the beach with some other dudes that were living at the skate park for the summer. These guys were from Europe. I don't remember exactly where they were from, and that's a case of me just not remembering. We were kind of buddies with those guys because they were there every single day. They were rad dudes. I think they were from, like, the Netherlands or something, you know, the low countries. I don't know for sure, but they were rad. We followed them down to the beach. Cops came, chased us all off the beach. So we went back to the skate park and tried to sleep (laughs) in the bushes out in front of the skate park. And we'd smoke cigarettes to stay warm. Fifteen-year-olds are so smart. Oh, my God. Yeah, so dumb. So dumb. Smoke cigarettes to stay warm. You know it lowers your body temperature a little bit. Because, yeah, we didn't take sleeping bags or hoodies or anything to stay warm. You know, it was summer. in where we're from in Escondido, it's hot as fuck. Well, Del Mar, like the fog rolls in, whatever, that ocean mist, It's cold at night, even in the summer. It's chilly, you know? So, yeah, we were fucking freezing and miserable all night long. Didn't sleep a wink that night. When the sun came up, when the skate park opened, we got to skate. We sure did for about a half hour before we pretty much were ready to collapse from exhaustion. You know, uh, yeah, but Delmar was rad. To complete that story, yeah, we just hopped on the bus and went home and fucking passed the fuck out. So there you go. Delmar Skate Ranch was super rad. I spent a ton of time there, a ton. Now here's another story from Delmar, and this kind of falls under that little state of skateboarding in the 1980s that I did a little bit earlier. Okay, one day Mike and I were at Delmar, and we had been going there for a while at this point, but we were still in the learning phase of skateboarding. Okay, I don't think that learning phase ever really ends either. By the way, does it? No, it doesn't with anything that you do, whether it be like playing music, playing some kind of sport skateboarding, surfing, whatever, you're always in a learning phase until you stop doing it, more or less. Is that—is that a fair thing to say? I think it kind of is. Well, let, let me put it this way then. We were in the very early learning phase of skateboarding, okay? As we were skating this part of the park it was like this kind of big reservoir part in the very front with really low walls you know maybe like four or five feet deep and it was cool that oh that I love that stupid reservoir we would skate there a lot there was this giant ditch kind of slalom run kind of at the back of the park and there was this great pool this super awesome pool that was kind of right in the middle of the skate park and that pool was a replica of Escondido's very much revered Kona Bowl it was a Kona Bowl replica okay now this it was a kidney-shaped pool Orange tiled. Oh, just a thing of beauty. Oh uh, yeah, that was just that was an insanely great pool to skate. So much fun. And we did have some experience of skating in empty pools before we started going to into Del Mar. There's a pool in Escondido that we called Sky Bowl, that actually everybody called Sky Bowl. So we got we got our start early on the love of backyard pool skating, I would say. That Kona replica again, that that was a perfect, perfect replica. And most importantly, when we were learning, it was never crowded. Nobody skated it. Never. Never, ever, ever. I mean, it had like probably two feet of vert. It was kind of gnarly. It was like a backyard pool. But yeah, no, nobody ever skated that thing, barely. The main attraction at the Delmar Skate Ranch was this gigantic pool called the Keyhole. And oh, we wanted to skate that pool so bad and just not kill ourselves or die of being embarrassed for not being able to skate it. That pool, that Keyhole was always crowded. There was normally a pro there skating it anytime you went middle of the day, at night, weekend, daytime, you know, or during the week, uh, pros like Tony Hawk, Neil Blender, Gator, Alan Losey, and so many more guys were always there skating. And it was rad to watch him skate because they, those guys were gnarly. They were great. We developed a goal. We had to drop into the keyhole. That meant rather than rolling in, because there's a big open spot in the front of this, this is why it was called the keyhole it was keyhole shaped. It was all like a vertical pool all the way around like almost a full circle but in the very front was a spot where you could just roll straight in and go up the sides of the pool and around like a keyhole right so we could do that no problem and kind of roll around and stuff like that but we couldn't drop in so there came a day when mike and i were both there where we both decided all right fuck it today is a day there's not that many people here we are going to drop into this pool today that was a huge fear of both of ours okay That we would either eat shit and get hurt, or we would be embarrassed because people would talk shit to us. And, oh, sure enough, this is 1985, okay? There's a couple guys sitting in the kind of bleacher area by the pool. We're both standing up on the edge. Nobody else is skating this thing. And these two assholes are like, hey, drop in, pussies. Come on, you fucking babies, drop in. These guys are, like, in their early 20s, right? Like, maybe 19, 20. Yeah. What the fuck? It was like in those days, in those like mid eighties days, it was like nothing for older people and older kids to talk all kinds of shit to younger kids. Like what the fuck? I mean, we were both like 15 at that time. Like I said, these other guys were in their like early twenties. What the fuck? Don't they have anything better to do? Do you think something like that would happen today? Oh no, no way. No. But you know what? Guess what? We both fucking dropped in that day. Both of us did. We pulled it off and we did it. And we fucking started to skate really good from that point on. We conquered a huge fear and slightly both of us kind of became a little bit more fearless than we were before. We started to get on par with some of these dickheads that would talk shit to us and even better than some of them. I'm going to get to a little more of that in here in a second. No shit, but we did it. And I think we did it just despite those fucking assholes talking shit to us, dude. Fuck that could you imagine that? If I heard somebody talking like that to my kid, if it was a 20-year-old, I'd walk up. I'd fucking punch that motherfucker in the back of the head, man. Get the fuck out of here, dude. I'm serious, dude. I, I would, too. Oh, I would risk jail for that. Would I? Ooh. I'd get in the guy's face, at least. Go, hey, shut the fuck up, man, before I whoop you. Yeah, can you believe that shit would go on? Isn't that crazy? It's funny. You know what all these assholes go on like about? Ah, everybody wants a safe space now. What's the alternative? Is having some dickheads do shit like this to you back in the day? Did it make us stronger? Yeah, I guess it did. But fuck it. Sure, it was miserable for a while. I wouldn't want my kid to go through that. That's horseshit. Yeah, but it, let me say this. Not everybody at that skate park at Del Mar was like that. Not at all. Overall, we did have really great experiences there and great times. Speaking of great times, oh, the very first time I ever got drunk, guess where that was? Oh, you got it. That was in Del Mar. Also in the year 1985. Now, that day was Mike, his brother Mo, Dave Carr, and I were all at the skate park. And we heard a rumor from, from, from some guys that we kind of knew from the skate park saying, hey, there's a ramp about a half a mile away up under this bridge off a of coast highway. It's really fun. It's rad. Why don't you guys go check it out? We're like, oh, okay, we will. We started skating that way and we were talking. We're like, hey, "Let's let's get some beer. Why don't we go get try and get some beer? We'll skate this ramp and we'll go home. Okay. All right, yeah. Oh, sounds great. Okay, high fives all around. Yay, let's go. Okay, we thought beer was kind of cool. You know, it still is cool when you are fifteen, though, and you've never really had a beer. Hmm, well, let's see how this goes. Uh, we went to a liquor store in like the south part of Solana Beach, kind of right on the Del Mar border. Sat outside waiting for somebody that was kind enough to buy us beer, and an older gentleman did oblige us soon enough, and we started drinking. We bought a twelve pack, I believe, of Coors. That gave us four beers each. Now Mike, Dave, and I were all fifteen. Uh Mo was, I believe, twelve. And we got fucked up. All four of us. And that ramp was there. Oh, that was a perfect and rad ramp, but we were way too drunk to skate and just made fucking idiot asshole <laughs> fucking fools of ourselves. Oh my God. And it was so bad. The other people that were skating the ramp were like, they weren't heckling us. They were actually cool. But they were like, You guys just need to go. You guys are shit house. Like we were laughing and oh man. Do you remember the first time you got drunk? How stupid you were? Oh yeah, it was that. Trying to skate with a bunch of like older kids and like guys in their like twenties. And yeah, they were like, You guys just go. You guys are gonna get hurt. This is stupid. And we we're like, Oh, okay. All right, we'll go. Woo! Yeah. Oh boy. Oh, it was fun. I did have a good time. Um, yeah, lifetime later maybe I shouldn't have had that first beer I've never been to AA or anything like that so I guess I'm doing okay yeah I don't know (laughs) oh that's a tough one isn't it well moving on from Del Mar well what else was going on at the time we were skating a lot of empty drainage ditches in Escondido there was one we hit a lot called the ashtray that was super fun that was by Escondido High School Uh, we street skated like crazy we skated every fucking time we if it was the sun was out skateboarding. No, doesn't matter. Dark skating, awake yes, skating, not dying of the flu or something. Skateboarding, raining, uh, find a covered spot inside of someone's garage or a parking garage or something and skating. Any every waking moment when we didn't have something else to do, we were skateboarding like crazy. If we found an abandoned backyard pool that we'd hear of or just stumble upon somehow. Oh, yeah. We were all over it. All over it. Now, in those days, most of the older skaters that were around in the town we lived in in Escondido, there weren't a lot of them, but those guys, for the most part, talked a lot of shit to us and made fun of us. They really did. Oh, yeah. They fucking hassled us nonstop, like fucking posers and this and that. Oh, and they were like, most of them were metal dudes. There's a couple older punk dudes that were kind of dicks to us too you know and they fucking just talk shit to us all the time anytime but you know what we fucking stuck with it so hard i mean we just gave every minute that we had skateboarding our all and you know what happened isn't that interesting while those dudes wallowed in their bullshit motley crew records and getting fucked up all the time we kept getting better and better and better at skateboarding and we got better than them Oh, and all of a sudden, let me, before I get into that, let me explain what it was like living in a, like a redneck or hick town like Escondido in the eighties. Okay. If you didn't have long hair and like listen to Motley Crue or Def Leppard or something, if you weren't a jock, if you weren't a surfer, you were a fucking target. Okay. You were instantly a target. They would maybe leave the nerds alone, but punk rockers and skaters that were not like metal head skaters, like had these fucking Hessian dudes. Oh, they would fuck with you. You were a definite target if you yeah especially you look like a punk or like punk band t-shirts shaved head or mohawk or something you were a, like a huge target so we got chased everywhere we went it seemed like every time we turned around some car loads of dudes would yell fuck you you know and it's a gay slur against us typically was the the normal word that i'm not going to repeat here yeah every fucking time oh and if you returned the favor and said like fuck you to them they would stop the car and six dudes would get out and chase you we got to be very we were in really good shape we were great runners we could jump over fences run through people's backyards hide we were fu- we were really good at total Ferris Bueller style shit right that oh, was great we were really really good at it we did we were in great shape well that paid off that paid off because we never got caught never got beat up by these guys that threat was always there now like I said though these same fucking Hessian pieces of shit that always talk shit to us and chased us and all this. Once we got to the point where we skated better than them. Oh, all of a sudden they wanted to be all buddy, buddy with us. Hey, what's up, bro? How you doing, man? Oh yeah. How are you? Did you chase me like three months ago before I learned how to do that fucking, you know, 360 frontside boneless? Oh yeah, you did. Okay. Well, I'm not going to hang out with you. Also around that time, Speaking of magical things, this thing happened with punk rock and metal, okay, and it was called Crossover at the time. Yes, metal and punk kind of did this weird merging thing in the mid-80s. Bands like Metallica, DRI, Corrosion of Conformity were coming out, and holy shit, I loved all of that so much. I've always loved a little bit of the metal, and yeah, oh fuck, that was good. And guess what? All of a sudden, all these metal fucking Hessian dudes, skater dudes, They were cool as shit with us because they'd come up to me go wearing like a corrosion of conformity shirt and go, oh, you like them? Fuck yeah, dude. That band rocks, man. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I've known all along. It just took you assholes for some dudes with long hair to be in these bands to be okay with them basically, right? Uh, That is pretty much what it took. But yeah, so we got a lot more respect from those guys. We had to work our asses off for that respect though. So for the record, for the record, this is very important to me, okay? This is important. Not a single one of those dudes who hassled us, who were really good skaters before we were, and all this, none of them ended up getting sponsored or doing anything like productive with skateboarding other than skating the local local ditch or pool or maybe at Del Mar. All of us ended up getting sponsored, traveling for skateboarding, doing all kinds of rad stuff. None of them did. Fuck them. You know what? That's what happens, man. You surpass these bully types in life by just fucking out working and out fucking doing them. That's it. Just being, yeah, man. I got a lot to say about that. I'm not gonna go on. We're getting, ooh, yeah, we're getting big deep in time here. So, yeah, none of them ended up doing shit, and we did, and that's called justice. Now, speaking of justice, where are all these arrest stories that I kind of alluded to at the beginning of this podcast? There was mention of a stealing a hotel tram, wasn't there? And Riding all around Bad Max style in the downtown area somewhere uh, that I'm not going to mention. Might still be wanted for that one. I don't know. That's going to have to be in the next episode. If I'm going to stick to the timeline, it actually didn't happen until like 1987. Okay. But up to that point, I did have a couple of trespassing tickets. I had had several run-ins with the cops and that got more and more. And boy... 87, which is kind of when I was 17, that's going to be the subject of the next podcast in this series. And oh fuck, I got arrested a lot that year. Yeah, boy. Here is a funny story though, from an interaction that I had with the cops in 1986, when I was 16 years old, Mike and I were at this place in Escondido that we skated all the time. It was near downtown Escondido and it was called, or we called it the hospital curb. See, it was a huge medical building and it was near the hospital. And it had these rad, really slick, red-painted curbs all around the place. And it it was really weird. It was up on a hilltop. It was fairly isolated. So we'd go there at night. We'd go down to the 7-Eleven in downtown Escondido, fish for beer, get some beer, you know, maybe some 40s, a 12-pack or something, go up to these curbs or wherever, and just drink and skate all fucking night, right? Well, that one night, the cops caught us. I was 16. Like I said, the cops came up to us as we are sitting there kind of drinking and skating and said, hey, how old are you guys and all of us said, oh, 21, sir. You know, can we see your ID? Um, no, sir. How old are you guys really? You know, um, yeah, I'm 16, sir. All right. So they made us empty every single can of beer. in the 12 pack that we had, I think we each had had like a half of a beer before they popped us. The police asked us, what direction is City Hall in from where we're standing right now? And we said, oh, it's over there, sir. So the police said, okay, face City Hall. Put your hands on your hearts and repeat after me. I swear I will not lie to a police officer ever again. (laughs) Those cops were actually pretty cool. They were kind of a rare exception. They were nice. They made us, you know, do this little thing, drain our beer. They said, all right, you guys go home. Get out of here. If we catch you again skating around tonight, we will take you down to the station, call your parents, and have them come pick you up. So we said, okay. So we did. legitimately, like, went home after that. And not all these cops that we encountered in Escondido and kind of here and there were cool. And we'll hear more about them in the next episode in this series. So why were we in downtown Escondido skateboarding, you might ask? Looking for beer, uh, almost burning down this huge bill. Oh, shit, that wasn't that night. That was, uh, it'll be on the other. I'm sorry, I keep saying it. it's going to be on the other one. Yeah, we did some. Oh, that was bad. That night was bad. We'll get to that. Well, we were hanging around downtown Escondido because Escondido's greatest skate shop rock socks had opened a location in downtown escondido they located sometime in 85 i think i'm not 100 percent on that maybe 84 we were drawn to that place. Oh, were we? The owner of Rock Sox at that time was one guy. His name was Herbie Shelton. He was a rad dude. He was a roller skater, which is really weird, but he loved and was very, very supportive of skateboarding. He was a roller skater. and We were skateboarders. So it, we would hang out with a dude like when he wasn't, the shop wasn't open doing stuff. He'd take us places for sure. We would be skating like in a pool or a ramp or just street skating. He was kind of gnarly on those skates. I mean, he would do tricks and shit. He was pretty good in a pool. He'd skate anything, a pool, a ramp, street, jumping stuff, doing this and that. He was good. Here he comes. Here comes Herbie on his skates. Yeah, seriously. That skate shop, though, the Rock Sox, that became our HQ. That was our hangout. That was everything to us. Not only did he sell all the skate stuff that we loved, he sold a bunch of punk rock records, band shirts. Oh, that place was heaven, man, To a 15, 16-year-old kid like me and, and Mike, that was like the best place on earth. So we started skating there. Finally, our town had a great place to buy the stuff we wanted, the stuff that we loved. Now, here's another quick side note about what Escondido was like in those days. There, Besides Licorice Pizza, there was another record store, and that, that store was called Gary's Record Paradise. Now, Mike and I went in there. This is before we started skateboarding, too. This is like Sometime in 1984, we went in there one day and we asked the apparently very grumpy owner of the store, Gary, if he had any punk rock records for sale. And we probably said something like, "Um, do you have any Dead Kennedys records?" You know, and he told us in his words, I think I remember him pretty exactly, "I don't carry that shit. If you want that punk garbage, you have to go out to lose an Sanitas. Oh, and then he told us he just regaled us with these stories of why punk rock was so shitty. Well, it was the worst music ever and also he did give us some information why punk rock wasn't big in escondido and this was his logic is that Luz existed and thrived because and was able to sell punk rock stuff because they could get k-rock they could get a signal from k-rock in la and escondido could not because escondido was inland it's a valley surrounded by mountains so the radio signal could not penetrate to relieve our poor redneck brains yes and we, uh, so we couldn't hear Rodney on the Rock, who he mentioned specifically at his show. In a way, he was right. No, you couldn't get K-Rock in Escondido. I don't think you could get K-Rock in Encinitas either. I think he was full of shit. Lou was just a much nicer man than Gary, okay? That's why Lou, and Lou was a, a smarter man than Gary, too, by the way. Fuck you, Gary. You were a prick to kids. Again, the theme of an adult being shitty to little 14-year-old kids for absolutely no reason comes out. I want to say, like, man, fuck you, 80s. But uh, the 80s were fun. You just had to put up with a lot more shitheads than you do now. That's that's what I think. But I do, you know, I talk shit about Gary from Gary's Record Paradise. I do want to say thank you, Gary, for turning us on to Lose Records in Encinitas, which was an absolute fucking oasis for us for the music that we liked. I mean, the first time I walked in— to lose records in Encinitas, it was like those cartoons where somebody's dying of thirst in the desert, and they stumble on an oasis, and no, not the one where it's like a fake oasis, where it's like a real one, and oh, water, oh my god, what a, lose was so great, yeah, wow, Gary, why, that's what, again, that behavior was so accepted and commonplace in the 80s by adults onto children, it's fucking weird, right, that shit would not fly now, and that's good, I'm glad it doesn't, I'm glad it doesn't. Be shitty to people when they deserve it. Don't when they don't deserve it. That's simple, right? That's my motto. Okay, now back to Herb, Herbie, and Rock Sucks. Uh, Herbie was so rad. He gave all of us little punk skate rats a place to hang out, check out new music, do our thing without judgment, without getting hassled. He'd drive us to contests and skate parks, he had a van. He had a little Subaru Brat. Yes, Subaru Brat with the backwards-facing seats in the back of that little tiny pickup truck. Now, one time, he drove us up to Ramona, California to a backyard vert ramp contest. Just some dude in Ramona had a ramp. I think he'd come into Rock Sox every once in a while, and he was having a contest in his backyard. We went. Good time. My nose got broken that day during a product toss for a Santa Cruz board. It was a Rob Roscop model deck. I got into the product toss. The board hit me smack in the nose, broke my nose. For the record, I did get the board. However, though, it was totally worth it. I actually set that board up and that board sucked so horribly. I think I traded it for the Vision Mark Gonzalez model, which became like my favorite board or favorite deck up to that time. That board was great, which that board ended up getting stolen or actually I forgot it somewhere and then I found it. And I took it from the kid who had it and said, this is my fucking skateboard, and it was my board. So, I, yeah, long story. Woo. For the record about my nose, if you're interested, my nose was rebroken later in life, got punched, and it straightened it out. Oh, great, good. Then I got punched again, and it got fucking bent and crooked again. Okay, well, back to where we started almost. So my nose is still bent and tweaked to this day. Thank you, Rob Roskopp, for the initial nose break. Even though you're not technically responsible, your board was. Thank you wherever you are, Rob Roscoff. I appreciate it. Now, Herbie also played bass in a local Escondido punk rock band called Fatal Attempt. They practiced at Rock Sox. We'd all hang out in front listening to them. The band Fatal Attempt, and they were rad. They were a pretty great band. That was Herbie on bass. A friend of ours named Bill Townsend was a singer. Another friend of ours. So we didn't really know Dave too well. I know him better now through Facebook and stuff named Dave Carr. Now, this is an older Dave Carr, not my buddy Dave Carr, who's the same age as me. Um, he played guitar, and a guy named Dave Purdy played drums. And here is a quick funny story about Dave Purdy. Escondido was a small town, right? So here we go. He was my neighbor from when I was about 11 up till I was maybe 14 and his family moved away. He was older than me. It was like my brother's age, so he was a few years older. He was a rad drummer. OK, one day I was hanging out in front of my house, maybe cutting the lawn or do, who knows what the fuck I was doing. You know, I was like 11 years old and this dude came running up to Dave Purdy's front door, screaming and yelling, come out, Purdy, come out, get out of your house. And the guy fucking punched a hole through his front door with his bare fist punched. And I'm this kid like standing there watching, going, oh, my God. Like, dude, I'm not kidding. This wasn't like imagine this guy like punched a fucking hole through his door, right through the door. Now, apparently, Purdy was inside the house having sexual relations with this young man's girlfriend. Oh, my God. Because after this, he punched a fucking hole straight through this wooden door. The dude ran around the back screaming, screaming and screaming. Come out, Purdy. Come out. Purdy ran out of his front door naked, ran one way down the street. And this girl came out also naked, but she was wrapped in a blanket and ran the other way down the street. Holy shit. Meanwhile, this guy's in the backyard, and they're already gone, just screaming, come out of of your house. Oh, boy, 80s, the 1980s. A lot of times, it really was like a John Hughes movie just gone horribly wrong. Boy. But, uh, yeah, Fatal Attempt was a pretty great band, and Dave Purdy was a good drummer. So Herbie really contributed to our little scene in so many immeasurable ways. He has passed away, and he didn't pass away maybe eight years ago as of this you know podcast i would say sad deal but yeah he was a great dude at the time man he drove us in his orange van one night one of my last stories about herbie here he drove us to one of the best shows i've ever been to i think it was winter of 1985 the show was at the california theater in downtown san diego the bands on that show were ministry of truth dr no who we've already heard from once we will hear from again the descendants and the dead kennedys wow what a fucking lineup dude Every band on that lineup was incredible, right? I mean, Doctor No was already a huge, huge favorite of mine. They were so fucking good, man. Descendants loved them as well. Milo was wearing one of those giant yellow popcorn bags the entire time they were playing, pretty sweet. Now Dead Kennedys, of course, I was a huge fan of from the very beginning of starting to listen to punk rock stuff. And when Jello took when they took the stage, Jello said the first thing he said to the crowd. Before they started playing, he said, we're only going to play songs off our new record. It's called Franken Christ. You can go home and listen to all of our other hit records. We don't need to play that shit tonight. Yeah, it was great, dude. And after that, they went straight through and played, I think, the entire record of Franken Christ. It was fucking beautiful, man. Oh, incredible. Dude, that's my favorite Dead Kennedys record. That's such a great record for the record. At the end, after they were done playing, Jello had to tell the crowd... Everybody needs to be cool when you leave. The cops are outside waiting for you guys. Don't start any shit or you are going to get the shit kicked out of you and end up in jail. He was right. There were cops out there on horses in full riot gear lined up all along the streets in downtown San Diego waiting for the show to come out. And we fucking kept our heads down and got the fuck out of there. And that was all because a fire marshal came in, looked around and said, oh, no, I don't like this. Get the cops in here. We need to shut this down. And they didn't shut it down. They kept it going. And uh, yeah, the cops showed up prepared for war. Fucking cops, man. Yeah. Yeah. Cops. Good time. Cops in the 80s. Yep. Also, in 1986, Herbie and Rock Sox threw a skate contest. And that skate contest was called Skate Straight. It was a benefit for like a substance abuse pro, uh, program in Escondido. That was the very first contest I ever skated in. That was held in Escondido's Grape Day Park. And it was awesome. Uh, Herbie hauled an old pink Cadillac down there and let everybody like graffiti and just fuck it up before the contest started, right? They put a launch ramp up to like the hood or the nose of the caddy so you could jump the fucking Cadillac. Oh, that was so much fun. And I skated in. Like I said, I think I came in like second or third in what I skated in. That got me. Uh, That was the first contest I was ever in that really gave me a taste of how stressful, but also how much fun skate contests could be. And from then on, I really had like a drive, a desire to skate as many contests as I could, which I kind of did. And that was then when during that contest, when I kind of decided like, you know what, I really want to get sponsored, man. I really want to be a sponsored skater. Okay, Well, that's coming you know, down the road, the next contest that I skated in was in Costa Mesa, and I think that was in the spring of 1986, and I won. I got first place in my division or whatever, and I got a Hosoi deck. Hopefully I'll be posting a picture of that deck. I do still have a picture of me holding that deck when I got home because I won first place in that contest. Woohoo, go me. Pat pat pat. There we go. <laughs> oh yeah. Now, that deck, I did, I hated that deck, by the way. It's a really weird shape. It was called the Hammerhead. So I traded it for another deck that I really wanted at Rock Sox like the next day. So the weekend of that contest in Costa Mesa, though, was rad. We stayed up there. We traveled all around Orange County. We had some rad spots, most notably this legendary spot in Anaheim called Sadlands. Sadlands was in a public park in Anaheim. The name of that park was Brookhurst Park. The skatable part of that park was a 1964 design, kind of a moonscape with these transitioned and shaped like craters, kind of all around this one little area of the park. Dude, that park was so much fun. Now, after that first trip to Sadlands, we made many, many, many return trips there to skate, you know, especially after I got a license. We hit that place at least two, three, four times a year it's gone now they like kind of jackhammered all those craters put rocks all around it there is a crew of people that skated there back in the 80s that are trying to bring it back now i am for sure going to post a link to their website if you'd like to help them out it's really awesome they're trying to bring get the city of anaheim to say hey you know we have public skate parks let's bring sadlands back it wouldn't take much to do and it's a rad place and it means a lot to us so hopefully i wish them well post the link They're they've got to go fund me they're trying to get it going. Hopefully, that works out. After that contest in Co- in Costa Mesa, I was in several more contests. I did well. Usually, I was like normally top five, and that ended up with me getting sponsored by Rocksocks. So, yeah, and it also led to more good things, shenanigans, travel, and stuff like that. We'll get to that next time. Okay. Sorry, I keep saying that, but yeah, there it is. Around the time of when we went to Sadlands, at, you know, that Costa Mesa uh, contest and all that, we also went to the Pipeline Skate Park in Upland, California. Like I said, I believe one of only two remaining skate parks in the entire United States. I was used to Del Mar, and Del Mar was a pretty mellow park. It was super fun, right? Upland was a fucking gnarly skate park. The combi bowl, it had a, there was a giant full pipe. There was this massive like slalom run that led into this huge, like, 13-foot-deep, like, 3-feet-a-vert pool thing with no coping. Oh, fuck, that place was gnarly. That place was not for the faint of heart, but we were up to it. I mean, we, the whole crew of us went up there, and we skated, like, all day into the night. Oh, dude, that place, it was fun. And we're going to go back to Upland later with somebody that figures very prominently in the last podcast in this series. Yeah, we'll be go- we'll be back. Don't worry. Moving on. Moving on. We're getting to the last part. Don't worry. Speaking of gnarly things, in 1986, uh, Mike and I met and befriended a guy by the name of Gator. Yes, that was a pro skater, Gator Mark Gator Rogalski of Escondido, California. You know, the guy who's possibly getting released from jail for murder soon? Yeah, did you hear that? He got granted parole, like, yesterday. Or the board said, like, he was now eligible for parole. They didn't deny him this time, so... He could be getting out of jail pretty soon. And I did get word from a friend of mine who said, oh, yeah, he's pretty much and who has kind of an inside uh, angle on this. He's probably going to get out. He served, I think, 27 and a half years for murder. So that's oh boy. Before all that horrible business, really, he was just kind of a rad skater. He was a pro from our hometown. We'd see him around like we'd see him at Del Mar. Uh, We'd see him occasionally skating spots in downtown Escondido, He'd come into Rock Sox every once, not very often, sometimes. When you talk to him, he was a really nice dude. He, was kind of, he wasn't kind. He was super friendly. He was sort of friendly, right? Not overly friendly. Somehow Mike befriended him first. I think it was after a contest that Mike was in that he won. The Gator went up to Mike. Hey, congratulations, dude. I love the way you skate because Mike, he was gnarly. Like, Mike skated most of the contests that I did, too, because we were, like I said, we were like glued at the hip. He would normally win. He'd normally get first place every time he was in a contest. If he got second, he had a bad run, and that was rare. That dude was gnarly. I think Gator started talking to him after a contest, and slowly, the three of us, Gator Mike and I, became good friends. Now, the first time I remember meeting Gator was at a contest, and I had placed second or something, and he came up to me and said, hey, good run. Like you had a, I like your style. like how you skate. Good job, man. You know, oh, okay. Later on down the road, after we became friends, one of the first kind of things we ever did with Gator was Mike and I went with him to Del Mar. He drove us out there at night and we went skating. Yeah, and off we go. You know, shit starts to get a little crazy after this, especially hanging out with him. And that's where I'm going to leave you. We have just met Gator, hung out with him one time. Massive fucking craziness happens. And I'm not talking bad, like murder shit. That he ended up doing much, much later. This is like 1986. We got up into some fucking major shenanigans with that. Oh my god, dude! I, I, yeah, I have some good stories. I am leaving you with a cliffhanger. I'm very, very sorry about that. We'll be back sometime in January. I'm thinking with part two of Skate and Destroy on the I Want to Party with Bob podcast. Yes, I'm very sorry, but there you go. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, this one was a huge deal to me. This one really was. Now. My wife, Willow, talked me into doing this one, and I'm telling you, I, you know, I was kind of like, eh, it's all about me. Nobody wants to fucking hear this, and I started remembering and thinking about kind of the stories that I had to tell, and this intro one's maybe not the best. It's definitely, I don't think it's going to be the best one in the series. I think number two is going to be the best, really, because that's where all the like crazy shit happens. But I had a fucking fantastic time remembering all this, scripting all this, you know, researching some of the things I researched. What a great, great time. I, man, I'm very fortunate to have been able to experience some of the things that I did in my life. And skateboarding and punk rock are two of the things I'm very thankful for. Very thankful to my wife, Willow. Thank you very much for goading me on into this because I'm stoked. I'm really happy I did it. I'm very, very happy about it. Good stuff, okay? Big thanks to Plan 9 Ale House of Escondido for the beer for this episode. As always, don't forget, get in there, ask them for the I Want to Party with Bob special. Have some beer, have some food, man. It's a great place. I've been there many times. It's an awesome place to hang out. Super, super cool. Get in there. They are awesome people working there. A huge, huge thanks to Kyle of Dr. No for answering my questions and letting me play a couple of your songs. You do not know how much that means to me. That means a ton to me because total fanboy shit right there. I love your band. I love Dr. No then. I do now. Thank you so much. Now, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Last but not least, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite bands of the early 1980s. That song is called Life Returns by Oxnard, California's Dr. No. Enjoy yourself. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Good night.